message is the love of God and being secure in the love of God. And in Romans chapter 8, we'll be reading from verses 31 through 39. A very encouraging passage here. Uh, one that sort of sums up the chapter, so to speak. Sums up the chapter in how we are secure in Christ and that we are people who are in the love of God because God's love is so, so very great towards us, so very sacrificial and to such an extent that Paul writes about it here in these nine verses. So in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, it reads this way. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, For thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's bow in a word of prayer together before we begin. Our Father, how great is your love for us. We pray, God, that you would help us to see, help us to know, and help us to understand, Father, the extent of your love, that it keeps us secure in you. That, Father, you would open the eyes of our heart, and that you would grant to us understanding, and that you would fill us with your Spirit, that we... Father, might give you praise and thanksgiving for your love. In Jesus' precious name, amen. One of the most difficult things for a person to face in life, if you've ever given it some thought, one of the most difficult things for a person to face in life Sometimes it's not the tragedies they go through, but sometimes the thought of rejection. The thought of rejection by those that are closest to them, whether it be a spouse, but particularly by perhaps one's own parents, the people who have raised them or sacrificed for them or fed them or 
helped them through their education or taught them everything that they know. And it's inconceivable in a sense when some of you might even think about what it would be like to be rejected by your own parents. But it happens to thousands, if not millions of kids around the world. And we watched that DVD because I wanted to show you just that there are many around the world like that, including here in the States, those who were born out of wedlock or out of families that divorced or children who have been abandoned or maybe children who have been abused or those who have been neglected or those who have been verbally assaulted and with hateful words face that rejection for all of their life. Orphans and children all over the world, millions And they grow up with a great sense of insecurity. They go to sleep wondering the next morning, will my parents still be there or is it my fault or whatever it may be? And they look sometimes for love and that assurance from some adult figure driven in their life by fear and insecurity. And many of them grow up having very, very difficult adult lives because of the rejection that they have faced. Many are orphans, like I mentioned a few days ago, I received a letter from Doug Nichols who preached last week and he writes this in his letter, quote, While in war-torn northern Uganda, we briefly visited a refugee camp to encourage several pastors serving in the area. I immediately noticed hundreds of children of the thousands living in the camp gathering around us. All of the children were so filthy. Those who had clothes wore rags, and most were sick, malnourished, and covered with flies. The camps were filled with violence and poverty, hopelessness, and fear. As we walked around the camp with the pastors, I saw hundreds of little children, including toddlers, with no supervision. They are left alone throughout the day. Hundreds gathered around, gazing at the visitors and timidly approaching us when we beckoned to shake their hands and smile. One little boy, about two and a half years old, stared at me for the longest time with no expression. He was so ill with a runny nose, protruding stomach, and yellow eyes. Who knows what he had? Possibly malaria. But he was so ill that he stood and stared as in a daze. Finally, he took my hand, began to smile as I talked to him, the other children. Who knows why he smiled? Perhaps he felt loved and accepted, did not need to fear. The next morning as I prayed for this yellow-eyed, sick little boy, the other children, I was overcome with sadness and wept, unquote. One wonders what it must have been like to have been there. And one wonders what it's like to have a life like that as that child. What goes on in the heart of all of these kids who are neglected, who are unwanted, who are orphans, who are rejected and loved, unloved by the world. It's like when I was in India, we visited an orphanage and all of those kids, they came and they all came outside just to see. And they didn't know who I was But they were glad just to have somebody who would visit them. And Art, who was there, who was with me. The teachers who were there, there were just two and they were short-staffed and they said, we wish we could take more, but they couldn't. Why? Because no one would go. 
No one would help. And they asked Art, they begged him to come and play with the kids again because that's all he did when he was there as a missionary. He served there. And one of the things that he and his family would do was that they would run the physical education classes and they would just go and play with the kids and the kids were so grateful. And you give the kids a, a little gift and they'll go gather around and they're so excited. Why? Not only because there was somebody who would come and see them, but someone who would give them something. They would like even to take a picture and see the little picture on the digital camera of themselves. All of these kids, some kids make it to the States somehow in some way. They make it to the States and they go to school and they find in school they're again rejected. Even by Christian kids who laugh at them or leave them out. Why? Because they don't speak English so well, perhaps. Maybe they're just different, or maybe they don't wear the right clothes, or maybe they don't, they just don't know how to act. And they're seen as weird or odd or whatever, and kids just leave them out. So they're lonely and rejected, and that's how the world sees and treats them. The fact of the matter is, and the truth of this passage is, that you and I were those orphans in the same way. You and I were just like these kids, kids in a refugee camp, kids in an orphanage, starving and malnourished without hope. The Bible tells us that is what we were in our spiritual lives, destitute, nothing, nothing that would be beautiful about ourselves. If we had any clothes at all, they would be filthy rags. If we were what alive at all, it was simply because of God's common grace. In our spiritual lives, we were lost. We were without hope. We were nobody who had no family. God knew. God knew that we would end up there. And He had planned it all such that He would come from heaven to send His Son so that His Son could come and adopt you into His family as His own children. There was nothing beautiful about you He came to that camp where we were all living. And He came and adopted. He loved you and He saved you. And He said, you will be my child. We responded to His call. And that's the entire context here in Romans chapter 8. Because one of the main themes here in this chapter is that salvation is entirely the work of God. And it describes how hopeless we were. When we look at verse 7, in chapter 8, it says, Because the mind set on the flesh is what? Hostile to God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You and I were spiritual orphans. Those that had no family. And our, our, our heart was against God. Our heart was against God. God came to that camp, that refugee camp where we were living. And what did He do? He saw us and what? We fought against Him. Before we were saved, the Bible says we even here. We weren't doing anything that we could do to please God. We were lost in our own sin. But God had planned our salvation even from the beginning for verses 29 and 30. Read what? For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among the brethren. For whom He predestined, these He also called. And whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also God glorified. God foreknew and God predestined and God called. 
And God justified. God's work of salvation in your life has been going on since eternity past. In the mind of God, for He foreknew. And He promises that you will, not you might, you will be glorified in the future. Just as Philippians 1.6 tells us, For I am confident of this, of, of this very thing, what? That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that is God's guarantee and promise to you. And that is tremendous security for the Christian. Tremendous security for the Christian. For the true Christian, there's no such thing as someone, quote-unquote, being a Christian and then leaving the faith or losing their salvation. There's no such thing as that, as someone who is predestined and called and God spiritually makes them right and justifies them and then, whoops, somehow they lose their salvation. No. But you say, I know people, I know people that, that, that I grew up with and they went to church when they were a kid and then in, in high school and then in college they, they, just, they, just, they just lost their faith. What about those people? The Bible continually reminds us of what that is. Continually reminds us that not everyone who makes a profession of faith who simply says, I'm a Christian... I believe in God. They say the right words. They say the right prayer. But mere words and the right prayer don't save because God knows the heart. God knows the heart. And if the heart turns to God in repentance from sin, God sees that and embraces Jesus in the heart. Then we are saved as people who have placed their faith and their trust in God. God, save me. And I know that I have done wrong. I turn to you and God saves and He changes that heart. What happens to those who never have a desire to follow God? They never really have a desire and they want to follow themselves. First John tells us, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of First John, right before the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, then First John chapter 2, verse 19. For John writes about what it is to be a true child of God. And he too addresses that same question about what about those who left the, 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 the faith, so to speak, quote-unquote. In chapter 2, verse 19, it reads this way. It says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out. Why? In order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. And many times you see persecution and difficulties do that. Persecution and difficulties in life. And people say, you know what? And just like in Jesus' day. Jesus' day, he began in Matthew, the book of Matthew. Remember, he, he begins in Matthew and in the first number of chapters, he begins to preach. And all of these people come around because he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And he preaches like no other man preached. And they say, this man preaches not like as our scribes and our Pharisees do. And then he begins to do miracles. Miracles that astound the people. He feeds the 5,000. He heals the lame and the sick. He gives sight to the blind to confirm the message which He preached. And more and more people come and they gather and they come and they bring their sick. But then what happens? He begins to preach a more difficult message. A message which says things like, if you want to be my disciple, then what? You must take up your cross daily. And follow me. And they knew what that meant. 
You must be willing to give up your life in exchange for its salvation. They knew what it meant when he began to say, if anybody, if anybody wants to follow me, they love, must love me and must love God more than they do even their own family. And they began to fall away and then persecution would come. They began to drift away. They began to fall away. Why? Because the message was difficult. The call to be a believer, a call to be a disciple of Christ was difficult. And the path that was once seemingly wide is narrow. And Jesus says, anyone who wants to come to me must come through the narrow gate. For I am the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. And begins to preach. And then, by the time Jesus is crucified... There are very few. There are very few. And that's what John says here. That some will not walk with God. Why? Because they've never really walked with God in their heart to begin with. But this text today, in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, addresses those and ensures those that are Christians, that are believers, that have embraced Jesus as their Savior, that they are eternally secure They were once orphans, but now they are adopted and they will always be children of God. And Paul gives here five reasons why those who were once spiritual orphans can be secure in Christ. Five reasons why you don't have to be afraid that someday you'll trip and fall and not be saved again. Because first reason he gives is in verse 31, that God is for us. For it says here, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? If God is for us, who then is against us? No one. God is for us like a father who will do anything, whatever it takes to defend his kids. God will defend you and God will protect you and God will guard you and God will care for you. Do you know that most parents will do whatever it takes so that their kids will grow up right and protect them? They're trying their best. And to have someone behind you, to have someone behind you means the world, doesn't it? I mean, I remember when I was in seminary and Pastor Henry was there and we would work because, because you know, you need to, to, to survive and, and you need to pay the tuition and all of that sort of thing. And once in a while, you know what we'd get? We'd get in the mail a little check by someone. Sometimes it'd be a lot, sometimes it'd be a little. But whatever it was, we were always so grateful. Why? Because of the thought. The thought that someone, A, remembered us. And B, because they wanted to support what we were doing. That was such an encouragement. And sometimes it wasn't even that. Sometimes it was pictures from the kids. Or sometimes it would be poems that would be written. Or whatever it might be to know that someone is thinking of you. And those of you who play in a musical group, I know some of you play in an orchestra or or you do different performances or you have debate or you you play on a sports team. When your parents come and they're there to support you or to see you and we have other friends there, you know what? Encourage them and thank them for coming. Thank them for coming because you know what? Imagine what it must be like for some, some kids who don't have anyone there to see them play. To see them win. That's what God does for you and I. He's there to support you and He wants you to be successful as a Christian. 
It might not be easy. It might be painful. It might be difficult for you. But God is for you and God wants you to be successful as a believer in Christ. He is your biggest fan. He wants you to walk with Him and He will do whatever it takes to make you holy. Even if that means difficulty or discipline or hard times or He may take things away. Why? It is for our good and for His glory. God is for us and who can be against us? Secondly, we can be secure because God gives generously to us. God gives generously to us, even His Son. Verse 32, it says, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? God gave us His Son. And since God gave us His one and only Son to die on the cross for you and for me, wouldn't He want to give you what is best for you even now? God gave you the most valuable thing to Him. God loves you and I, regardless of the cost. You think it was cheap or easy or difficult or whatever it might be, you know, to give up the thing that that would what? That would mean the most to someone. Their own child. And he wouldn't give us the life of his son only to risk losing a person's salvation. That is the assurance that we have. Psalm 84 verse 11 tells us, For the Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. God is a generous God. God is a generous God and He will give to you generously. We think, boy, if I only had more, that would make me happy. Some of the most discontent individuals, though, are those who have a lot. Thanksgiving comes we're to remember how generous God has been to us. How generous God has been to us. And I tell those people who have been in, in college. Remember when you were in college? Maybe many of you have been in college and you didn't have very much. Maybe when you first got married, you didn't have very much. And you were just trying to make ends meet and, and to make ends go together. And how you were... How you were just trying to get a, a bicycle so you could ride around campus or your first car or whatever. Remember those times that were there? Because what happens is after you get a job and you begin to get paid more, it's easy to forget how God had brought you through more difficult times and how you were content at even those times of how much God has given to you even now. There were times, and it's wonderful, I love to listen to some, sometimes when I was a little boy, I would love to listen to my grandmother. Just sit there, and she would be, she'd love to tell these stories. She'd love to tell these stories, and I'd love to sit there and listen, even to my mother now. My mo- grandmother has gone to be with the Lord, but even my mother now, I enjoy listening to her stories. Why? Because they tell us of a time when she had much, much, much less. Back when she was growing up and how things would be and how they would make their own soap and how they would take the water from the well and they'd have to let it settle so that the, that the, that the mud would settle to the bottom and they'd pour it out and then they'd boil it and then they'd take the water from there and then they'd have to refrigerate it and then they'd do whatever it would take to get a drink of water because it helps me to be grateful. 
It reminds me of God's kindness to me. It reminds me of God's generosity to me and love that He extends to me and to you in all that He has given to us. If God did not spare His Son, won't God continue to be generous to you and even grant to you that security that comes that is motivated by His love? Thirdly, we are secure in God's love Because God made us right with Him. God made us right with Him. Verse 33, it says, God is the one who justifies. God is the one who justifies. What does justify mean? It's a legal declaration where you and I are called and said to be made right with God. And it's the major theme of the book of Romans. The question that people ask is, how can you and I as a sinner be right with God, be holy so that we can go to heaven? And it is because God has done it. It's not because we were justified by our own self. There is now, it says in verse 1 of chapter 8, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a done deal. And if God has made you right, God will keep you right. God gave us eternal life and God promises our eternal security. And fourthly, God's Son prays for us. God's Son prays for us. It says, who is at the right hand? Rather, it was who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. You know, Hebrews 7.25 tells us the same thing. He is able to save forever those who will draw nearer to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Do you know the Bible tells us that Jesus prays all the time for you and for me? That's what He does now. He died. He was risen from the dead. He's gone to heaven. And He sits at the right hand of God. And what does He do? He prays for you and for me every day. What does He pray? John 17 tells us he prays that we would be secure. We would have that security in Christ that we might be in the world, but not of the world. That we might be kept from evil, that we would grow spiritually, that we would be one with Christ, one with God and one with each other. And don't you think when Jesus prays, God hears his prayers and God answers them? God doesn't say to Jesus, no, that's not right, or no, you have to wait, or whatever it might be. Jesus prays for you and for me. And He prays that we might grow and be secure in Him. And fifthly, the crux of the passage comes here, that we are secure because of the love of God. Verse 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves you and I so much so, so much so that nothing will ever separate you and I from His love. Not even our own stumbling in this life, 
Not even the mistakes that we do. Not even the distress that we have that are here, here even on this earth. And nothing in the heavens will ever separate you from God's love for you. God loves you and nothing will ever change that. Nothing will ever change that no matter what happens here. You may feel as if you're a failure. You may feel as if, boy, I don't feel as if God loves me. You may feel, boy, people sure don't appreciate me or people don't pay attention enough to me or people are, or, or, or they, they don't express or my folks or my friends or whatever it might be. But you know what? God loves you and he loves you unconditionally as a child of God. He has a special love for those who are his children. He has another type of love that is common, that he loves the world, as John 3.16 tells us. But for those who are his own, there is even more special love which is expressed here. That nothing will separate you from the love of God. That the love of God is what motivated him to save you in the first place. For in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 and 5, it says, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons. What was motivating him to send his son to die for you on the cross? It was because he loved you. It was because he loved you. And it wasn't because you were exceptionally lovable that you were somehow beautiful in yourself. No, God loved you unconditionally and he saw the heart that was there, the rebelliousness of your heart. But God's compassion looked down upon the earth and saw you and he redeemed you and he took you out of that camp. And he said, you will be my child. And we responded to his love. There is a song that we had sung, the very first one this morning, the one that is printed on the front of your bulletin, called The Love of God. And the words read very clear. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair... Bowed down with care, God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. When years of time shall pass away and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love so sure shall still endure, all measureless and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. And perhaps one of the greatest verses in all of hymnology is the last one. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Life may not always be easy. Life may not always go our way. Life will contain tragedies and suffering. Life will be difficult many times. And there are times when God will bless. And God will grant to us peace. And God will grant to us so much that we 
can turn to Him in thanksgiving. Either way, why? Because the love of God is sure. And it is because of the love of God that we are sure of our own security in Christ. That He secures us and that we will never lose our salvation. And God gave His most valuable thing, His Son, to die for us. The extent of God's love for you and for I is a reason why we give thanks this year, Thanksgiving, and for all of the days to come. For nothing can ever separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks because of your love. Father, I pray that you would cause our hearts to rejoice and to worship because of your deep love for us. Father, may we take time to reflect that it is because of you that we can even stand and sing of your praises. And may we sing of your love forever. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.